0: For June 24th, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 573, Your, Your Song.
1: Welcome to Overthinking It. The popular culture to a level of scrutiny It probably doesn't deserve We are your smart, funny friends From the internet And we're never happier when we're talking about the stuff we like This week on the show, you probably tell, we're talking about the movie Rocket Man, so I hope you don't mind, I hope you don't mind that I put down in a podcast how wonderful life is with discourse
0: in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Lee.
2: <laughs> that is but really, really, it's, it's not me, though. It's you. It's your song. <laughs> oh, it's fine. your song, Matt. And your song, too, Matt. For,
0: for, fair point. That's Mark Lee. Also here, Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. You know,
3: you're so vain. You thought that
0: song was about you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm Matt Rather. We're talking about the movie Rocket Man. Spoiler alert for the life of Elton John
2: cocaine lots of it i mean just out the wazoo holy crap every every that coming
0: every drug he says he tries (laughs) in uh in the the, uh in the movie and he says he enjoyed them all well let's dive in hi i'm matt rather and i'm a podcaster
3: (laughs) this is a brilliant framing device matt it is flawless (laughs) 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 <laughs> it will incur no drawbacks to the structure of the podcast in general.
0: Okay, so that's that's where I wanted to start. I <laughs> I this was one uh this was one of the things and i hate to start with something i i didn't like because i i think i'm with you guys that like by and large i i really enjoyed this movie i really loved a lot of parts of it uh and i think that there are there are some also some things in the writing and the the structuring especially that are drawbacks and and this is one so let's kick it let's get it out of the way so we can kick it off the table and talk about talk about the good stuff um the, uh, the, the movie begins in a, uh, it's not exactly an AA meeting. It's at a inpatient, uh, drug treatment facility, um, where, uh, Elton John kind of like wanders in, commandeers a whole meeting, you know, like someone was probably sharing, right? At the point that, that he walked in and just, uh, just takes over the whole thing to tell, uh, to tell the, the story of his life and i mean that's okay because it's the movie that we're we're all here to see like a lot of things it's sort of presentational and not exactly representational but um i think i think that the framing device writes a couple of checks that the the movie doesn't cash and that's def that's the big downside that i see with it i don't know peter are you, are you with me on this or you uh you see it differently
3: Yeah, I guess what I would say is that the movie, the strength and weakness of the movie is it doesn't tie itself down to being a biopic in a strict sense, and it really engages with Elton John and his music and kind of his phantasmagoria, right? His memories, ideas that other people have about him, uh, the glasses collection as sort of a spiritual thing (laughs) to an extent, right? But and it doesn't tie it all down to a strict plot, but. Instead, the thing that it puts in is already kind of cliche, right? Which is this framing device where it is all a rehab meeting where somebody is explaining their life to a bunch of people in a rehab. And then at the end of the rehab meeting, all of their family members appear sort of as ghosts. I don't know if we're, we're not supposed to believe they all actually show up at the rehab, right? They're memory ghosts and they show up and he kind of reconciles with all of them by imparting upon them the wisdom that he has that they don't have because he figured out why he's smart and his family isn't. Yeah. Which is an oversimplification.
0: They're they're force. they're force ghosts. They're all dead. Yeah. 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 And, (laughs) And, uh, you know, Darth Vader is, is roasting on the pyre and he's, uh, uh, you know he's talking to to all of those people, right? I mean, like just kind of set zeroing in on the central irony that that you're pointing out in in a movie that refuses to be tied down to a linear explanation of his life, or like uh, you know putting it all down to um, you know uh, psychoanalysis, like family neglect or abuse or homophobia or drug addiction or whatever in a movie that kind of touches on all of these, but goes into this other goes into this other fantastical space. It seems a little bit dreary to tie it down in a format that's supposed to be the kind of the, like the linear uh, psychological explanation of Elton John's life.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Because one of the big, Uh, dialectics in the middle of this movie is the uh reggie versus elton dichotomy right which is kind of straining against itself and the movie does itself and all of us a real favor by not coming down on the side of i should have been the authentic person that i was meant to be all along right It, it neither rejects nor fully accepts the transformation that elton john goes through when he goes from being a kind of British working class kid who is very very uh, who performs an identity that uh, his society expects of him to this outlandish artist, well, performative, flamboyant, not outlandish. This flamboyant artist who is breaking all sorts of campy boundaries. Uh, it, it, it neither it, it neither says that the campy boundary stuff is all bad uh, or that the the uh, dreary uh, growing up stuff is all bad or all inauthentic. Um, and, and, and so it refuses and denies that, but the framing device around the movie would seem to reinforce one or two of the ways that that would break down. Like you would expect him to come to some sort of conclusion. I mean, another thing that I would say about the movie is that, uh, for me, it's one of the only movies I've ever seen where I wish it was an hour longer. I wish that it ended when he was I wish that when he was in the rehab and he realized that okay, I figured out who Elton John is supposed to be. He's supposed to be 80s Elton John, right. not 70s Elton John, not 60s Elton John. That we then got to go see 80s Elton John through the 80s and 90s. And this was sort of an inmateus race thing where it's like, okay, he's figured out who he's gonna be. Now he has to go do the big thing that he needs to do. Which I think the only the only plot point that for me seemed of universal attraction and, and so, my wife agreed was writing the Princess Diana song. But anyway, Mark, you go.
2: You, you miss the uh, you, you feel like there's an artistic apotheosis that was missing a third act uh, or not even a third act, but just like some s- broader sequence of like Lion King and, you know, Diana, Princess Diana, Candle the Wind, all that kind of stuff. Right. I, yeah, I think that's yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah, it does leave you a little bit hanging. It's like you get the I still I'm still standing music video recreation, which is super fun, but um, not what you, not what uh at least our generation would call the apotheosis of his career. Um, let me give at least one defense of the framing device. And maybe we should move on to other things is that um, I love how either intentionally or unintentionally, it's totally taking a swipe at Bohemian Rhapsody. And this yes. is going to come up a lot too. And the, the comparisons may be fair or unfair, but it's just, you know, the movie exists in context. It cannot escape its context. Right. And, um, and by the way, in case you weren't aware of it, right. Uh, Dexter Fletcher is the uncredited director who finished Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, and also, of course, did Rocket Man. Um, you see Elton John. It appears that you're 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 thinking that he's going to the concert because he's in his Outlandish co- costume. You hear huge music. There's the lights and everything like that, and it really evokes the beginning of Bohemian Rhapsody, where you've got Freddie Mercury in the tunnel about to hit the stage for the big Wembley Stadium uh, extravaganza at the end. Um, but nope, it's like you know, like smash uh, the music abruptly cuts out, and then it's just like him in the uh in the rehab room. So at least at the at the outset like the that framing device is doing a ton of heavy lifting. Um that's saying that, you know, this moves this is presentational, this is not your typical biopic. Um and it also puts a lot of the focus on the substance abuse story and, and again to the credit of it. I mean, that's if you really break down and strip away a lot of it and you know the um, step away from the psychodrama, psychodrama, the main thrust of this drama is um how does Elton not kill himself and come out and, and survive so that he is still standing at the end of it? Yeah. Right.
0: Um, so good e-e- enough. Let us uh, let us never speak of the framing device again. Um, and let's uh, dive into more uh, to, to more felicitous grounds. Uh, Mark, w- would you say that you're a fan of the music of Elton John? Uh, y- yes. I see. <laughs> no I see. Can, can um, you relate on, no, um, several, can we go into maybe some sort of musical number that relates several experiences from your life? That is a long elaboration of an experience from your life where the music of Elton John might have <laughs> meant a great deal to you. <laughs> well, it goes like, you know, I was born in
2: 1982. No, I'm going to tell I'm not going to tell the entire, my life story uh, to the tune of tiny dancer. Um, you'll actually, you actually might have to wait a little bit uh, uh, afterwards for a bonus segment to, hear more tiny dancer Um, okay so just like very briefly um, as a young child growing up um, I I learned how to play piano kind of the second time around not classical wise but pop rock wise uh, by and large the music of Elton John um, I just latched onto it because I don't know. Just what I, I happened upon it on the radio. It was, it was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. Um, it it I latched onto it as well in some tough periods of my life. Just like the poignancy of the music. Um, there's something in there that spoke to me. Um, fast forward a few years later, um, I proposed to my wife at karaoke after singing your song. Cause you know, it's, it's, it's your song too. And it's her song. It's everyone's song. Um, uh, and it was also our, our first dance at our wedding as well. And I saw Elton John live in concert. Um, And I, I play, as you can probably guess, I play, I know how to play a lot of his music on the piano. I love, love the music of, of Elton John. And um, it, that's why so much of this movie spoke to me in terms of how it repurposed the music really tapped into its potent power to communicate so much emotion, you know, that that we have all as a culture, um, as individuals have uh, imported into our own life. And then it all just kind of slinks it back in the direction of uh, of the guy who wrote the song, who, who sort of wrote the songs. Right. <laughs> Didn't write the lyrics, but wrote the songs. And then um, and, and tells such an evocative and emotional tale um, using all that material. Um, I found it just like both very just enjoyable at a um, uh, kind of instinctual Uh, level, right. Uh, visceral level. Um, but then also just like kind of the, the exercise of thinking about like who wrote these songs and how do songs have meaning, uh, and how do they change in different contexts? And then when you pair them up with the originators and their, and their story, um, how does that, uh, how does that power get magnified or, or not? for that matter. So uh, that's a lot of stuff that I, I put out there. Um, I don't know if Pete or Matt, either of you have like such emotional connections to Elton John, or, if so, or if not, and then like how you uh, then turned that to uh, in, interpret how the songs are being used in this movie.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, no, not so much to the, to the music of Elton John. It was not a part of my, uh, you know, it was not really a part of my childhood in the same way that it was a part of yours, a part of those like peak uh, music years. in. Um, but I you know I was a piano player I never learned uh, you're you're a talented multi-instrumentalist, Mark, and I only ever learned to play one instrument and it, uh, it which was the piano and so like I sort of latched on to him later, later in life as like I feel this kind of spiritual affinity for uh, all rock and roll piano players um, because I was, you know, I was a piano player and I kind of burned out on the classical stuff as well and like got back into it largely through jazz when I was a teenager. Uh, now I was, you know, a, a, as anyone who has listened to this podcast for any length of time knows I was a huge Tori Amos fan, and like, so that was my like pop piano sort of milieu. But like, uh, it, it was like in college, really, with you guys that I got where you know my musical horizons broadened. It's it's funny to say my musical horizons broadened to include the like the most famous rock and roll <laughs> piano player of, <laughs> of all time. But it was you know for whatever reason it was just kind of outside the scope of what my thing was. So, um, but like, I definitely am. I definitely am really interested in how songs kind of weave their way into your life. Um, I'm going to see, uh, j- j- small digression. I'm going to see the Indigo Girls next, uh, weekend because oh, next week, because of course I am. And, uh, like, it's just like the, the kind of like the moody emotional teenager in me is like, cannot wait to go see, go see the Indigo Girls. So I think like songs sort of they attach to certain times of our lives. They attach to certain feelings. There's a kind of private interpretation of the lyrics or the music or like a little dance move that you used to do when you heard a particular part of the song, like that all of that, you know, that, that kind of like becomes, uh, becomes part of your story. And it's, it is a, Uh, fantastic and I think unique thing about music versus other forms of, of art where the, the music in the, um, under the conditions of like mechanical reproduction and especially digital reproduction, um, can still maintain like some individuality you know can can still your your song and pete's your song and my your song can still be three different your songs even though they're all even though they're all uh, the same your song that said i mean i sort of i i wasn't totally on board with the way the music was integrated with the jukebox musical aspect of of this and it has to do with like it has to do with the the idea of Reggie versus Elton of you know uh, Elton John being sort of a free artist of himself and um and like or being kind of tied down to this you know uh very mid twentieth century like psychological explanation of of what was going on right like the 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 songs can't just be they 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 can't just be explanations you know kind of glosses on the stuff that was going on in Elton John's life at the time, or else they wouldn't you know i don't know they wouldn't they wouldn't take off like the rocket man would not take flight if that's all that he he brought to the table and um yeah and 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 I think maybe maybe later for that but but pete i want to see i want to hear what you what you have to say on this topic
3: yeah, sure, so to give you guys some extra context as i often bring up on the podcast i grew up in new jersey which means that i lived firmly within the billy joel sphere of influence Uh and so the the big piano playing pop star guy of the 80s for me was billy joel and it's notable to to think about billy joel in this context because while a movie of billy joel's life would perhaps uh, not be the biggest cinematic draw in the history of the world. Uh, The Billy Joel jukebox musical came out almost 20 years ago and was one of the first jukebox musicals, right, which is moving out, which has played everywhere and back again many, many times, Bilbo Baggins style, and I'm sure has made a ton of money left and right. Uh, And I would say that the idea of a jukebox musical for Billy Joel's songs makes a ton of sense <laughs> because this, because Billy Joel isn't necessarily really writing about a lot of personal topics. A lot of the time he's kind of and, and Bernie and Elton John aren't either. And maybe that's part of what I want to explore, uh, ask you about and explore a little more is that. um But it's it's different in that um when when Billy Joel sings a song about like being on a boat or work in the steel mills in allentown or any number of other things that he hasn't really authentically experienced uh there's a there's a sort of like sense that we're all kind of delegating our attention to that thing at the same time and he's not necessarily uniquely privileged over anybody else to tell the story he just happens to be the piano man like the guy on the piano who happens to be singing it nobody's like oh man you know like We didn't start the fire is great, but you know, no cover really stands up to the original, right? Like it's it's if we didn't start the fire is we didn't start the fire. And yes, my we didn't start the fire is different from yours, but it's mostly with regards to which lines we're able to remember. Whereas when like Bernie and Elton John they talk about like going back to the farm and picking up a plow. Did Bernie work on a farm? (laughs) Certainly Elton John didn't, right? But they have these these metaphors in their songs about being rednecks and having plows. Uh, maybe that's a piece of it that I don't understand because I don't know the history. But yet there's something about the sort of strangeness of those kind of uh, moments of kind of um, heartland living that sneak in this campy way into Elton John's songs that seem to connect with this idea that what Elton John is doing feels like it's more personal uh, than the other kind of big, uh, you know, adult contemporary rocker songsters of the 80s of whom Paul, uh, I would include um, – uh phil collins in their number right like uh yeah like like there's something about the the way that bernie and El- there's something about the way she um they, they combine their uh they combine the sort of the themes that they're pulling from lives that aren't theirs with the emotions that seem to be very personal to themselves which is maybe what allows the songs to translate to other people Maybe that's where I'm kind of where my sort of uh, radar is pinging on this, because I, I know I'm kind of rambling. But having not really had a ton of exposure to Elton John, really, other than making jokes about Tony Danza and uh, playing Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting at marching band and, and Candle in the Wind and whatnot. Like, like I'm kind of finding myself investigating this artistic person for the first time and not and not really knowing what to what to say about it. But but the big the big takeaway I'm thinking is like okay, you know there 's this subjectivity to the interpretation of the song. This is a movie in which Elton John is interpreting lyrics that are written by somebody else as if they were about his life and they 're being put out there through the performance of actors who are not Elton John as if it was their life, and then we 're responding to it uh, because we connect with it as if it was our life and there 's this this kind of these dominoes, this like chain of experience that 's flowing that i mean i one of the things I appreciate is that the form of this movie as a kind of Memory dreamscape connects with the idea that this isn't an individual experience, but a cascade of shared experiences uh, to in a much more kind of honest way than Bohemian Rhapsody, which gives us this kind of unitary idea of like this is what Freddie Mercury is and what he stands for. Not really acknowledging the kind of like, well, this person's Freddie Mercury and that person's Freddie Mercury and your belief and truth and they're all different. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I guess I should just Wikipedia whether this Bernie guy was a farmer. That so I, I a- don't
2: think so. I mean, my yeah. understanding of the, the biographies of the both of the men is that they didn't, you know, have nothing particularly rural background. But interestingly enough, uh, they're both into country and western music, which is oh, uh, referenced right. very briefly in the movie. Which while you might get some of these shades of the rural or the western, it's certainly why you hear like steel guitar in uh, a bunch of songs um, when you otherwise uh, would not have the context for that. Um, so uh, th- that explains a little bit of that, right? So, But I guess to, to address the, the broader thing about um, lyrics and the songs and how we ascribe meaning to them and, and how we're seeing that done again. But for, for, for these guys, I, I thought about this, and I'll I'm, I'm try to put it this way and see if this makes any sense. It has to do with the specificity of these lyrics um, that paradoxically make them more general, Okay, Um, something like uh, a song like Tiny Dancer, right, you know, where you had these references to the, you know, uh, uh, ballerina, you must have seen her dancing in the sand. Right. And that's a lot of very specific things in there. Um, and, and none of us have ever. It's highly likely that none of us uh, know a ballerina um, dancing in a sand, or have, have have experienced that sort of thing. But or you know have have. Uh, held a tiny dancer very closely, but like, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so it's like it strengthens How all those. How tiny is the dancer? <laughs> yeah, speak,
0: speak for yourself, Mark. That's, uh, you know. Fair,
3: fair enough. Fair enough. But anyway, so to wrap up my point here, actually, a that, tiny dancer is a landmine. It's a song about the. the... No, it's not about the Cambodian genocide. Oh, that—that's that, that, a Prince <laughs> die connection, right? <laughs>
2: uh, all that okay, um, <laughs> okay. So it—it it, it makes these images so evocative, right? And then it gives us a platform upon which we can then ascribe our just feeling of having held someone closely, mm-hmm. right? And then anything else that vaguely closely maps onto that, whereas something that's much more forgettable and generic about holding and, um, yeah. and, and I don't even like night scenes like that. Just like, like
3: she's always like, a woman like, to me stick. by Billy Joel, which is a very generic and straightforward song with no specifics. Right. Like, or, you it's,
0: don't or it's still rock and roll to me by Billy Joel <laughs> or <laughs> it's always wow. five o'clock somewhere so, by Billy Joel or
2: whatever. <laughs> Shade throwing podcast, Not expect that. Um, so, so right. It's so, with the, these songs. I think are, this, this is the old, these, this is not the only artist or like songwriting pair to do this, um, oddly enough, like the whole Steady kind of comes to mind as someone who throws out a lot of specifics that provides a strong scaffolding upon which to, to build our own um, our own interpretation and, and map them onto our song. So, like, you know, why not? It's it my answer at the end of the day. It's like we had that experience. Why so? that should let's let, let's do that to the artists themselves like how fun would that be um and then it just like kicks everything else into a much higher gear because uh these are the folks who actually made the songs um that's not a super intellectual way of, of thinking about it but that's the best that i've got so far
0: i i mean yeah the there definitely is something in the like the Bernie Topin lyrics topin topin the in Bernie's lyrics um in Bernie Bros lyrics where the the uh there is this kind of conversational aspect that it's not just specifics it it is specifics um tossed off uh, in this kind of like free associative way like and the the best example of of that for me is like if I was a sculptor, but then again, no, you know like as as opposed to <laughs> scratching out that line on his you know it actually he 's recreating a movement of thought he 's recreating kind of a, a conversational um, style in, in putting it that way. If I was a sculptor, but, but then again, no, or this or that, like that's that he's, he's kind of like free associating. And some of the, some of the tiny dancer lyrics are like that as well, where it's just this, it's this kind of succession of images. And that's, um, you know, it's a good, uh, it's a good technique if you're if you're a very very good songwriter um paul simon like boy in the bubble is another is a song where it's just like this that who's the the, the whole the i mean none of the things have, none of the images have anything to do with each other uh the boy in the bubble and the baby in the babble and but it kind of it adds up to something because you know paul simon like worked his apprenticeship like writing like uh you know five paragraph essays of a song like Uh, bridge over troubled water um which begins when you're weary feeling small and ends like a bridge over troubled water i will lay me down like like it's a it's a perfect you know thesis statement type of uh uh type of type of lyric anyway so that that like that that conversational style um I, I think one of the things is, is it does is like the the bricks are not it's not a poured concrete wall right like the bricks are a little bit loosely laid or it's a rock wall and it allows you to kind of slip into the yeah. slip into the empty spaces a little bit.
2: So, so I, I mostly agree with that um, that you know in terms of the free association piece of it. But interestingly enough, um, where there's uh, less free association and more of a narrative of sorts in these songs that really uh, undergirds the movie itself is the song Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Right. Yeah. Um. Much less a rocket man. Right. I mean, that is uh, at least in, in the context of the movie. Well, um. You know, there's a bit of that uh, of that's the title song, um. That speaks to uh. You know, the him reminiscing about his childhood, and then you know the 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 cocaine aspect of being a rocket man, um, for the, the LA Dodgers stadium concert. But that song is much less important to the movie than goodbye yellow brick road. Right. So let me just play a little bit over here to remind you of it and just t- take a listen to the lyrics and then the music as well too. Right. So it's
1: when are you gonna come down? When are you going to land? I Should have
2: stayed on the farm. I
1: should have listened to my old
2: man. So I'm going to stop there for a second. Right. Um, uh, when are you going to come down? When are when are you going to land? Should have stayed on the farm. Should have listened to my old man, right? There's it's, it's setting the stage of sorts of a, um, a hero's jo- journey sort of thing, where somebody strays away from very humble roots, right? And then and the music itself is is um, um, is 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 and then it kind of keeps, keeps kicking to higher gear. You know you can't hold me forever. I didn't sign up for you. I'm not a present
1: for your friends to open. This boy's too young to be singing the blues.
2: I'll get to that in a second here, but um, you can't hold me forever, right? You know, um, uh, uh you can't hold me back forever. It didn't sign up for you. Uh, I'm not a present for friends to open. This boy's too young young to be singing the blues. Um, it, it's it's specific enough to be general enough to be specific enough again, right? <laughs> um it's uh because you know we we've uh we, we've become very familiar with these lyrics over the years and now we can kind of think about um elton john thinking about himself not being a present uh for friends to open and also this boy uh, elton himself or reggie such as it were is too young to be singing the blues and then um the the chorus here let me just do this here
1: brick road where the dogs of society howl. you can't plan me in your penthouse i'm going back to my plow
2: um so it's going all over the place here right um you've got that key change first of all um that um speaks to the more fantastic side of the yellow brick road but then it comes becomes comes all the way back around um where he says that he's leaving behind um the extravagant life of uh Uh, symbolized by the yellow brick road or Oz, such as it were. Um, And then he said, then he says, he's going back to his plow and also going back to hunting the horny back toad. um, I'm not really sure what that's about (laughs) there. Um,
0: Aren't you? you?
2: (laughs) Okay, fine. If you put it that way, Um, okay. So you can see here there, right? So that uh, if you interpret it, Loosely enough, for, again from the specifics that were provided by the song, that um, that you are able to map some of the movie storyline onto it, and it's not perfect at all, right? It's by no means a one to one, but it's close enough. It was kind of goes back to my well, why not do it? <laughs> I, comment, I like the, the, I like so the
3: idea. I like the idea that's in this song as a re, because as it occurs to me, oh, the farm is Dorothy's farm in the Wizard of Oz as much as as it's anything else, and so. The idea that Oz isn't an escape seems key to the song and to the movie, that we usually think of Oz as the technicolor escape from dreary black and white Kansas. But I guess what the song might be pointing out is that the structure of Oz, the fact that there is a road and that you're supposed to be going to the Emerald City, and along the way, you meet all these people who have tasks assigned to them to interact with you in various ways while you're along this yellow brick road that, that the very idea of having this kind of progression is more constraining than being in the farmhouse in Kansas, which is is uh, and it's not necessarily that it's like, yeah, it's sort of like it's decadent, but he is hor- hunting horny back toads. He's not like, uh, you know, he's not just going back home to work. Uh, and with Elton John singing that, you can't get away from the idea that it's something else that he's talking about. Uh, and and the idea that, that going back to his plow, which does also sound like his penis, um, is, is sort of like getting the work done, that he's going through the unbroken earth, that he's trying to be generative and creative and industrious and not kind of follow the track of leisure that's been let out for him. Um, I guess that's one of the aspects of the movie that's really interesting to me is that um, the idea that Elton John thinks he got bad at singing, that he's worried that he can't sing anymore anymore. Or play piano anymore because he's gotten so caught up in being Elton John and doing the drugs and everything that when he sobers up I don't know I don't want to over talk it Matt you you responded to something there oh, what I were thought you,
0: you said well because you were talking about sort of laboring and metaphors about yeah. laboring and the thing that struck me about about this movie and and I feel like I was doing some pro- projection while I was watching it, it wasn't just the, the movie theater that was doing the projection hey yo I felt like I was maybe bringing some ideas is to it about like art uh and art you know performing as sort of as as an escape like because when he's you know he's performing in life he's creating uh he he was he's creating a persona like he's becoming uh the person that he wants to be you know he he doesn't want to be hemmed in by his his sort of dreary you know working class upbringing or middle class upbringing, whatever class he was he he, he was unhappy with it. he was unhappy with class all uh, all altogether right, but that when he talks about performing and when he talks to John Reed or when he talks to Bernie about um what he does on stage, he always talks about it as labor, right? He always and not just any labor, like sort of excruciating labor, like it's it's backbreaking what he does, like the things that uh, the things that he does to kind of contribute to the team, right? If you think of like modern art, modern music is being made by um, you know being made by teams um, and not necessarily by like individual geniuses, like his contribution is this this hard work of of like going out there and performing and and yeah i suppose it is like exhausting uh sort of it's it's a good aerobic workout to like support some of those headdresses on your neck but i feel like that the interpretation that we're supposed to to bring to it, or maybe this is just me, maybe this is is projection, like, is that like, those are the moments when he's sort of truest to himself and not the moments when he's paying the sort of heaviest price with his body and his soul, kind of giving over to the... Um, giving over to the labor. So the idea of kind of going back to the farm and sort of laboring in the earth, just like the, the metaphor, sure, it's, it's, it's sexual because a plow is a, is a, you know, pointy thing that you like, that you jam into the loamy field. But the, uh, uh, but also like, just imagine like tilling, like the, like tilling the, or plowing the field. I guess tilling is a different thing. Plowing the field, like you cut a row. And then you go back and cut the next row, and then you cut the next row, it must be kind of like playing the concert, and then going back and playing the next concert on the tour, and then going back and playing the next concert uh, on the tour. (laughs)
3: i thought you were gonna reference doing lines of cocaine oh yeah uh... (laughs) yeah are you aware that the term for turning your plow around in latin is versus which is where we uh get the term verse meaning dude after i do all these lines of cocaine i'm gonna write some verses
0: Uh (laughs) so
3: no 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 it's (laughs) so okay
2: how do we reconcile this notion of labor and working extremely hard uh on the piano going on on stage with the transcendent scene at the Troubadour concert, where he's making his American debut, and he makes everyone levitate. Matt, I know you responded uh, strongly to that, right? Like, uh, I, is I that, love to. That that, is that a form of labor? Because, like, that, it, it, when you think about like the plow and the rows and things like that, it's something that's kind of like more routine, more workmanlike. And that moment at the Troubadour was anything but, right? It was totally transcendent. Um, you know, like utter artistic expression. At its peak.
0: So here's, I mean, here's the thing about, and you guys are performers too. So you, you probably have your own perspective on this, but like the thing about being a performer professionally is that it's your job to make everyone take off every night, no matter how you're feeling. Right. Hmm. And, uh, and that's the hard, you know, that's the hard part. Like there's, uh, I had a, um, you know i remember uh i i remember a a play i did where i had a scene where like i was supposed to cry and make the audience cry and like in and it was like it was difficult like and it required actually not just at work but like throughout the day maintaining kind of a a headspace where this was going to be possible for me at the end of the you know at the end of of two hours of of live theater um and that like so you know the 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 uh the taking off happened and by the way it was such a wonderful moment of of filmmaking and like really you know uh just just an F you to, um, to, you know, biopic representation, like, to quote-unquote realism, whatever that is. Like, just, you know, they all start flying. The concert's really good and they all start flying. It was expressive. It was, you know metaphorical it was fantastic and they completely ruined it by giving it away in the trailer i so so wish that that had not that i had not known that that was coming and had not been you know to a certain extent waiting for that uh waiting for that moment to happen you know the,
2: the, the other, it's a really interesting choice before we get too far away from this piece of the conversation it's a really interesting choice of song for this moment right because they did not have to use Crocodile Rock. Uh-huh. Um, and in particular, uh, Crocodile Rock was not even written. Uh, it had not been released at the time that the Troubadour concert actually happened. I mean, I know, we've, you know um, we're not constrained by linearity and you know, the facts and things like that for this sort of music, but for this sort of movie. Um, but the song is so goofy, right? Um, uh, it's uh, just to remind you of the, that particular part uh, of the song where everybody starts to levitate. It's the la,
1: la, 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 la. La, 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 la,
2: la, la, la. it's like totally not serious it's not like the the more poignant uh, stuff in the Elton John songs that we've I think we're more focusing on that provides more fodder from this movie it's just like just pure unadulterated silliness and joy um I mean when you put it that way it's kind of obvious that like you know that's what's going to uh, really amp up the crowd. Um, but, uh, they could have done something else, but they did Crocodile Rock, the goofiest of song of his entire catalog, is, is what I'm saying. And that's interesting in and of itself. But that's, yeah, I, I would...
0: mean, that's interesting. Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and Crocodile Rock have a, like, a la 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 just sort of singing no, no lyrics part. And I, you know, I don't know. I sort of think of that. I, that's, that's always an interesting move when someone writes a song with, uh, with a no, no lyrics part. And it's always sort of, um, I feel like those those things it, it's a something about the poverty of language sir uh the <laughs> <laughs> you know the I, I I always feel like those um those things are about kind of moments of transcendence within the within the song where the whatever the kind of the animating spirit of the rock and roll song like explodes and can't even be contained by lyrics anymore. I'm sorry, Pete, I, I jumped in and cut you off. Oh, what no, no, it's about? OK.
3: I wanted to touch on Crocodile Rock for a second and everything that you guys have been saying, because I think there's something else that you can at least read into it, I think. Uh, and one of the parts of the movie is that I think is both movie that is both part of what we talked about at the beginning, but also part of what I liked about it. The aspect of Elton John's personality that is a hard worker uh, is is present in various parts of the movie. And this idea that for him art is work it seems to be ingrained in him from a young age. And because because we, we get to see these scenes where it's him and his parents and his parents are caricatures, of course, they're overblown, you know, caricatures, even as the memories of a small child. But. Crocodile Rock is the song that Elton John plays that is probably closest to the songs that he listened to that his father played on the hi-fi, I would suspect. And and in the sense that why is it that it's Crocodile Rock that that in this movie vaults Elton John forward? It might be because it's a song that's connected to the past that he grew that he's being is being presented in this movie as his past, which is a past of I was a uh, I was a, um, a a child of a jazz enthusiast who had a really grim, uh, unpleasant sort of uh, joyless ethic about the world. And that was kind of where I got my no- nose to the grindstone attitude. I was also the child of this huge leper print-wearing sassy queen who was amazing, huge in personality, right? And, and so it's like like I'm, I'm the child of both of these people, and the art that I make is a, produ- a product of what I've experienced And the sort of way in which his stardom takes off has to incorporate what he's made out of the material of his past, uh, which I guess is presented in the movie most directly through the Saturday Night Song. And when you get that look into sort of what is the because you don't usually think of Elton John as somebody who grew up in like rough and tumble working class Britain in the 60s or even the 50s. Right. Uh, Especially not somebody who like went there by way of Motown. Uh, which is, of course, much bigger and more generally accepted in in um, in England at the time among white people than in the United States in certain ways, um, and in France as well. But uh, but yeah, it's this idea that that uh, of course the work transcends when it's coming from the place that the work comes from. So I can see why they would have moved Crocodile Rock back because uh, they're trying to chart a sort of musical influence that starts from him playing. A little bit of classical piano hears off the radio, and ends with him pushing over a whole bunch of yoga instructors on a beach. Uh, I guess, which is sort of the, the the but but that is a through line that doesn't exist in a singular timeline across Elton John's life. It's something that is all representative of all of his oeuvre, uh, and not necessarily. I don't know if people think of him as having distinct periods. I guess he does, but. But that was what I wanted to say about, about Crocodile Rock is that it's a nostalgic, nostalgic song in both the composition as well as the content. Pu-
0: pushing and, over uh, – oh, yeah. Sorry. And finish. Right. No, That's it. That, that's only totally it. Go for and, it. Uh, pushing over the line of yoga instructors on the beach, by the way, is like a heavy – a sort of heavily elusive like uh, dance move. So, guys, I don't want to like intimidate you uh, or like make you think that I'm a big deal. Uh, but I'm uh, beta testing the New York Times app. I'm a New York Times app beta tester. Okay, yeah, I
3: did, they're coming out with an app now. No, Why they they, they, not...
0: they have one, but uh, oh, okay. I get I get uh, additional features like in. Ooh, um,
3: Like when they Um, roll out new champions, you get to test the balance (laughs) test. Like, does Paul Krugman have area effect damage now? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, And they're doing a, uh, they're doing like a new story format that's like Instagram stories. So, you know, this is either great or else the end of civilization, depending on your point of view. And they did one about the Rockettes Toy Soldiers moment uh, where they fall down. And what Elton John does, uh, which was like a thing about an interview, video interview with some Rockettes and like Uh, an Instagram story-like thing, series of of still-and-moving images that uh, explains the effect of the Rockettes and the Christmas Spectacular falling down uh, at Radio City. And that's the thing that they're doing in that, you know, with them all lined up like that, with their arms kind of interlaced between the others... Between the other's arms, he's doing this like speaking of sort of nostalgia and speaking of like you know kind of childlike childlike wonder or things that are supposed to amaze children. Like he's doing a thing um, where uh, where he is in kind of a a sexy way on the beach. He's recreating this like famous dance move of the Radio City Music Hall Rockettes.
3: And the only part of the Christmas Spectacular that is still performed in the exact same choreography as it was in the 1930s, uh, which I've seen and is very
0: impressive. Oh, yeah, it's uh, great. It's yes. it's I mean, it's, it's hey, thumbs up for the Christmas Spectacular. <laughs> I, I think they've been not using the show
3: generally, but that one part where they all get shot by a cannonball and like and do the falling down wave. Yeah, for yeah. sure. they don't follow it by all doing burpees in the stalls of an American Gladiators course or whatever is happening at the end of that. By the way, what a weird historical moment to painstakingly recreate in yet another uh parody slash takedown of bohemian rhapsody that's happening he made the two movies at the same time and one is totally criticizing the other it's so great it's so nuts i don't know mark is there another elton john song that calls to you in this moment that you want to play
2: um other than I'm still standing, which is, uh, which is uh, <laughs> right, uh, because you know those dancers they're not standing anymore. Ironically, right now, not right. ironically because Elton John is still standing. Um, I don't know, not so much a song, but um, something I wanted to talk about before we uh, get too far away from the mention of the parents. Um, the music number earlier on, right? I want love, um, which like everybody is, uh, you know, in their little corner of the house, and uh, they're super unhappy, and um, they each of them are singing how they. They want love. Um, question for the group. Is that super on the nose or just just right for
0: this sort of yes, movie? Super on the nose.
3: <laughs> Elton John did a lot of things in the 70s and 80s that were super. Uh, on the nose. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh Wow. I really just teed that up there, huh? I, mean, uh, I felt like the most on the nose moment in the movie was somebody says to him. I think it might have been Rob Stark, King in the North, said <laughs> it was in him. It might have been somebody said to him, there was darkness and then there was you.
0: Yeah, that's right.
3: Yeah, and that's the sort of—that's, for me, the really on-the-nose mission statement of the movie, uh, which is is contrasting the sort of sadness and despair associated with, you know, the dark times in your life with the, with the darkness of the absence of a person. And this idea of, like, I want love in this way, I want love in that way, uh, everybody wanting love in different ways, is something characteristic of the idea that each of them is a light because they exist— and the love that they want is something that uh, has a s- sort of performative and existential value. And that Elton John's artistic mission and why so many people connect with them is that we're all these kind of thousand points of light out there, that we're all rocket men. Uh, and and that, yeah, you know, we, we have good times, we have bad times, we feel very lonely, we explode, we burn up, we you know lie atop writhing masses of orgiastic celebration at studio 54 you know just a regular regular sunday you know recording the podcast on top of a giant pile of orgy people um but yeah but that that's the sort of idea behind what is going on that's so special with with this is a movie that's very pro star this is one of the few movies that says you know what's great celebrities <laughs> right like celebrities are great and and that the the emergence of a celebrity is this beautiful social phenomenon that speaks to something that's true about each of us which is that before we were around we weren't around, right? And, that, and now that we are around, we exist and that's great. And the idea that the ascendance of a celebrity to stardom is like a ritualistic performance of our own birth that we all get to collectively witness uh, and celebrate because we watch this thing ascend and that we also are ascending.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, would you, would you say, uh, Pete, in some sense a, 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 a celestial body is nascent or a, um, you know, a a pulsar is uh, delivered unto, uh, or no? A um, uh, a star is born. <laughs>
3: I was going to. <laughs> I thought this was going to end with a candle in the wind reference. Okay. <laughs> I was like, what Elton John's song is he talking about? <laughs> oh, man. You know what song I really wish had been in this movie? I really, really wish it in this movie. Is that what's fr- That's what friends were for. What friends are for. I wish that we'd met movie Dion Warwick or movie Stevie Wonder. Because <laughs> every time a sort of celebrity showed up in this movie in a ridiculous outfit, I was like, yes. <laughs> um, so, and I wish that we'd gotten to see who they would have picked to be Dion Warwick. Um, probably would have been Jennifer Hudson and it would have been awesome. Uh, but also, did you guys even notice, speaking of of uh, uh, characters who show up in ridiculous 70s outfits in this movie? I am I am pretty sure that at one point in the background of this movie is uh, is is uh, what's his name is Dutch from the Shield. Jay Carnes. Uh, doesn't he show up in like a background shot? Um. It's like in the rec- recording studio and then doesn't get any lines. And oh, that's
0: really? It. Oh, that's it. Oh, the, the actor, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I... Yeah. I thought, I thought like my favorite one was Tate Donovan as Doug Weston, yes. you know, yes. because he had, he was so, he was so perfect. He had this kind of edge of menace, I thought, right? That was underscored in the, uh, that was underscored in the kind of the low angle shot of him introducing the first show by the, like the Bowie knife dangling from his, uh, dangling from his belt, like in a completely impractical place for a knife, like dangling over, uh, his quadricep like just down <laughs> down in front like that's not either for utility that is some, that is some plaxico burris level safety <laughs> I, yeah that, that's
1: not that, where you that, want the way, knife
0: either either for utility or else to throw down that's not where you want to like, keep your edged weapon
2: at first i was thinking that's really the opposite of chekhov's knife right where you know if, like, if you suggest that it's going to be that, that this instrument of violence is uh, going to be used, and you got to use the instrument of violence. But uh, I think it's not right. It has to do with what homosexuality, for lack of a better word. Yeah, right? it's
0: a, it's a, it's a phallus. Just, just, spoiler, spoiler alert. It's a phallus.
3: By the way, Tate Donovan is my favorite celebrity encounter in my life. I think. Wait, you <laughs> met Tate Donovan? I ran into him. I was at Logan Airport in Boston and I was walking around. I think I was tr- either going to a flight or coming from a flight and I was a little bit lost walking around the airport and it was late at night and I th- so I think I might have been on the way to the baggage claim after landing and coming home and I was walking through a vacant part of it and like hustling and and he's tall, right? He's oh, yeah. a tall dude. And uh and hustling up the hallway uh was the uh, unmistakable star of one of my favorite campy uh, not so great but endearing movies and highly problematic movies speak about edge of menace love potion number nine tate donovan right uh walking up the other way and he looked not happy right he was he he had stubble he had like kind of like graying stubble he clearly been traveling for a long time he was clearly looking for something and i recognized him and it's funny because I feel like I bring Tate Donovan up to people fairly often because he's been in a whole bunch of random stuff. And it's like, you know, that guy, that guy who was dating Jennifer Aniston that one time. And I always call him Topher Grace. And then I forget and call him Tate Donovan. Um, But I like Tate Donovan's work a lot. He's Disney's Hercules, right? Uh, All this other stuff. And there was this moment where it was like I recognized him. He recognized that I recognized him. And I don't know whether there was something really complicated. I don't know how much I was projecting onto the moment where he seemed to go through a lot of emotions in a very brief moment. Part of it was like, I don't really believe that this guy is recognizing me, right? Because I like, do I get recognized? Is that a thing that happens? Also, like, I'm really not in the mood for this. And also a sort of like, I think, a tiny, hopefully, moment of gratitude when he realized I wasn't going to talk to him and I was just going to let him go. (laughs) Um, Where it was just sort of like, okay, you know, like we had a sort of celebrity thing and maybe it was just like glance at me without thinking at all. But I like to think that I had this sort of weird, silent late airport encounter with Tate Donovan where we like mutually agreed upon that his like level of celebrity, uh, neither required nor like really invited, uh, me to interrupt him during a very difficult time for him. <laughs> so I hope that if he's out there and if he remembers this weirdo, this weird moment, which I'm sure he doesn't. Um, but then I hope that I did the right thing.
0: By, oh yeah, uh, you you absolutely yeah. did the right thing. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. for sure. No, every everyone like you know, celebrities are are human too and uh just like navigating the airport is terrible. <laughs> um for for every for every human being largely because air travel is an extortion racket where you have to pay them a lot of money not to like literally punch you in the literal face so um, if
2: if only there were uh faster more celestial methods of travel like i think it's going to be a long long time i'm a rocket man we are rocket men are we not um so uh, I don't know Matt. were you about to take us? <laughs> I was gonna go in a different direction. I was gonna
0: say, you know who else had a little celebrity thing? John Reed. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> played by uh played by Rob Stark the King in the North um in this movie and played by uh the master of coin, uh you know, uh Tommy Carcetti in the uh in the other movie.
3: Wait, well oh he's in both movies?
0: John Reed is was the the manager of Queen as well. What? Yeah, so the character the character is in both films. And is played I by actually... Aidan Gillen, who played Littlefinger in, uh, unless I'm totally wrong, but like um, but was played by Littlefinger in, or Tommy Carcetti from The Wire in uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, and played by uh, Rob Stark. What's his name? Richard Madden, Malton, one of those. Um, Richard Madden. Yeah. Madden. Yeah.
3: Wait. So. So wait a minute. So wait. A minute. Far, <laughs> so the far, from, of- far from the Madden crowd. So during all that stuff that was going on with Freddie Mercury, the manager of Queen was the, like, live-in lover manager of Elton John. They weren't... And it never came up in okay. Bohemian, Rhapsody. In Bohemian like, Rhapsody. Rhapsody. Like, this was not relevant that he was the manager. He was, like, the the, the the companion of the one of the few comparable acts of a much greater size and magnitude in the whole world. Man, that's so—also, is it so weird that there's a, play, a character that both John Reed— Uh, That both uh, Richard Madden and uh, Aiden Gillen can play uh, in movies that came out one after the other. That blows my mind. That is crazy. That guy was, was that guy really as big of a jerk as he looks? Because he looks like a big jerk. (laughs) So let me think about the conversation since we started
2: talking about both Queen and uh, Elton John here, right? Because um, these movies are not just pure artistic projects, right? They're very much um, artists trying to protect their legacies. Uh, dot, 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 sell and stream more of their tunes, right? So um, does that in any way cheapen what we're seeing here? I mean, you know, the movie, sure, it can stand uh, on its own as a two-hour theatrical experience and full of joy and sorrow and all that kind of stuff. But uh, as I was saying before, neither Elton John nor this movie can exist without context. So uh, that's the question to you guys. Like, what do we make up the context that this movie is coming out in?
3: The idea being that Bohemian Rhapsody is a movie about Freddie Mercury that was made by the other members of Queen and and Rocketman is a movie about Elton John that was made by Elton John or that Elton John was the executive producer of and was the helmsman of and like was very, very much in creative control of it for a long time.
2: Yeah, that's an interest. That's that, Those are those are interesting parallels to draw, but um, or different distinctions yeah. uh, a little bit as well, too. But uh, more importantly, like they're both of these are these legacy projects. Such yeah. as it
3: were, like from artists of roughly the same era. Um, it creates an occasion for the art, right? Like it creates a reason, a, a, a sort of purpose that prompts it to happen. And I kind of wonder whether. It, well, I agree. I think what you say in terms of it cheapening it it, it, it makes it less of a prestige project and less of a sort of arts for art's sake project in line with the Western tradition of monasticism, right? That like the only truly morally yeah. good thing you can do is deprive yourself of any sort of measure of pleasure or advantage that might potentially uh, come from the suffering of somebody else or the disadvantage of somebody else, which results in you like moving out into the middle of the woods. right? Or, so, like, so the, or,
2: or the opposite is going to be like make a movie like Moonlight. Which is about a poor gay young black man, as opposed to a movie so, about a, a a rich old white gay okay. white man who sells a lot of records.
3: So, super, so you're saying famous. the topic, the, so the topic is not just that the, the that the movie is for a sort of extrinsic purpose that is somewhat self-aggrandizing, is that it's also for and about somebody who is involved in the self-aggrandizement industry, uh, and that sort of creates a sort of layers of self-aggrandizement. Well, though, of course, the movie it's kind of about that too and it, and one would even say that this movie has an extra layer of that because it's something that takes place in sort of the Kingsman cinematic universe right like this is a great prequel for Kingsman 2 if you've never watched Kingsman 2 now you can you have everything that you need uh, cuz <laughs> Elton John is in that movie uh, uh we, of course yeah and we all watched that movie and podcasted about it right so we kind yeah. of we know this thing and so like this, this movie exists because of Kingsman 2 yeah. In, in so, addition to everything else. Um, so what, what I want to talk about
2: for a moment is uh, creating the occasion for this music, mm-hmm. right? Um, and what, what I mentioned earlier in our uh, discussion and uh, preparation for this is that um, this movie, and I could say the same for Bohemian Rhapsody as well, but I think more so for this movie, um, revitalizes, recontextualizes, and gives all the music um, the sense of freshness and urgency, which it might have had when it first came out, but has lost uh, you know, as it became – Um, inevitable and omnipresent in our music landscape. Um, Like, you know, when you're down the aisle at CVS and you hear, uh, I guess that's why they call it the blues, you don't think about the cocaine and the heartache uh, that went into it. I guess now you do. Um, And, like, is that that okay? It feels a little weird that, like, um, I was going about my life and thinking about Alton John songs in one way, and then this movie and this massive, massive marketing blitz comes along, and drastically changes the way I think about this
3: music. I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, I mean, I don't really I don't have too much of a problem with it, but I don't know. It's I,
0: I it's, feel like when you unite your—look, uh, until, until uh, Elton John, before Elton John, we were supposed to unite uh, the sublime happiness or the sublime sadness of our life to the suffering of Christ on the cross, right? But now— <laughs> You know, I, what, what I'm saying is like holy Moses. I have been removed. Uh, I've seen the specter. He has been here too, distant cousin from down the line. Brand of people who don't want. No, I'm I'm joking. But the the uh, uh my point is that like even I think even when. Uh, I don't know if you're if you've ever been sad and tried to like put on sad songs to make yourself cry and stuff. It's you're generally kind of kicking the sadness into overdrive. You're 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 not going after depressive sadness, right? Like you're going after operatic sadness. And and, you know, to to a certain extent, like the the operatic nature, the kind of the sublimer transcendent uh, aspect is what CVS is is going for when they're playing, um, when they're playing. I guess that's why they they call it, you know, call it the blues. Like uh, laughing, like you know, washing your face with Neutrogena soap. Right? They're tra- they're trying to like imbue the shopping experience with some aspect of uh, I don't know some aspect of of you know, transcendence to kind of make it a revolutionary act to, to get your, uh, uh, to get your dove soap bars or something.
3: (laughs) I think what I would say, having had a moment to think about it is that, uh, this is one of the reasons why I wish that the movie had gone on to tackle, uh, candle in the wind. Um, if only because, the charitable way of saying it is that because of changes in technology, the uncharitable way of saying it is that because of the collapse of the existence of intellectual property in various respects, uh, right, that, uh, that people like stars like Elton John can't really exist anymore in the sense that somebody who plays music can catch on and become super popular and everybody in the world hears their song and knows their song and it sells however, a million, millions of records being that like, yeah, other than White Christmas, there is no song uh, that is sold more than Candle in the Wind as a as a single, right? And I think we can probably safely say there never will be again. And so that's part of why my engagement with this idea is like, well, yeah, Elton John's trying to sell more music. But also, I think that the culture is starting to realize that this kind of figure and starting to realize and metabolize that this kind of figure is in the rearview mirror, that the age of the recording artist is over. Uh, and and uh, the recording artist as a kind of public personality of this magnitude. Um, what What Bruce Springsteen might refer as to as hustling for the record machine. Right. This sort of working class dream of playing your music so great that the record company signs you and you become like this big superstar stuff like that. It sort of happens. But now it's sort of like, oh, your reward is that, you know, now you have a job and you can hustle to try to get a Jeep endorsement deal. Right. Like it's like it's not the same. And so
0: it's also it's a lot more short lived, and it's a lot and it's a lot more. You know, I, I mean, it's actually it's interesting. We did a, a podcast on the top ten of the the Billboard Hot 100, and it's you know there wasn't anyone who was anywhere close to the level of of Elton John fame. It's kind of like why Big Bang Theory going off the off the air is a is a big deal, right? There aren't there aren't sitcoms like that where they have the you know huge broad appeal of Roseanne or of MASH or whatever, where like when you know. What was it when Mash uh, did its finale? Like one in four television sets in the U.S. was watching it, or something. Maybe I'm getting the show wrong, but you know, a, co- a comparable statistic is true. And that's, uh, yeah, that that's sort of uh, sort of an interesting thing as we move into um, you know personal bubbles of like uh, Bluetooth headphones playing music composed for us by uh, artificial intelligence algorithms.
3: I mean, we could even make an algorithm that wears the headphones, and then we can remove ourselves from the equation entirely. Absolutely, (laughs) but but I think the point, but the the weird, the sort of perverse aspect of it, in in addition to this being kind of like a a cultural metabolism, it also sort of seems like the perverse aspect of it to me isn't so much Elton John aggrandizing himself as much as like, well, this is what we have left, (laughs) right? Is that like in another like you know in another time it would have been like Justin Bieber, Never Say Never. Uh, would have been an attempt at something like this that was contemporary, but we have to make them about nostalgic acts because nobody would go see the Halsey movie. Uh, Well, let me rephrase. Not enough people would go see the Halsey movie in the theaters they'd have to release on Netflix. And in that sense, it wouldn't be a big shared blockbuster experience, which means it wouldn't be about the same things and the music and the resonance of music would be different, right? I'm sure people would still go see the Halsey movie, but the Taylor Swift movie too. Uh, but, But it would be different, right? and so um yeah you know it's nostalgic about elton john and if you sort of transpose it back 20 years it's like almost famous to people who are like fifty, twenty 20 years older than elton john it it's not changed that much but at the same time it kind of feels like the end of the road although i would love to see the boys to men biopic uh i mean we saw the the Straight of compton biopic uh and that that felt like more of a social metabolism than a music metabolism that that felt more like about the circumstances and the life and the relevance of these people as historical figures than necessarily just about their music. And then if you saw the Tupac movie, then you would realize that they have no idea what they're doing. But uh, uh, that's not fair. Tupac movie is – I mean it's a mess. All Eyes on Me, the fictionalized Tupac movie was uh, – probably the less said of it, the better. Um, Yeah, yeah,
0: Poetic poetic Justice was a better Tupac movie than – you know, the,
3: there you go. The, the, the hottest actual... take of 2019. Right there. <laughs> the actual... Pinkett Smith would agree with you. So, <laughs> you actual... guys, you guys
2: know that Elton John had a duet with Tupac, right? Wait, what? That's that's the celebrity cameo. See, this is not why get this this. the
3: third act. We needed the duet with Tupac. We needed the duet with Eminem. We needed him to have a forced ghost quartet, barbershop quartet, with him, Tupac, Eminem, and Princess Diana, oh uh, all singing together at the at the at the rehab center that he goes back to when it gets plowed over and turned into luxury condos. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, all right. Let's uh, let's leave it there. Thanks very much for listening. And thanks very much, Mark and Pete, for podcasting. We'll be back next week with more overthinking and podcast. Uh, if, if you are a member of overthinking it, if you uh, give us the the five bucks a month to keep us in in cocaine and uh, modern art paintings that we hang upside down on the wall. Um, or was-
3: lattes and <laughs> books of the expanse series. Yeah, really,
0: really at that, this point, it just goes, it just goes into hosting. But the, yeah. uh, um, you know, if, if you are one of the heroes who, uh, who ponies up, who thinks that we're worth a buck a show and, uh, ponies up that amount to, uh, to support us by going to overthinkingit.com slash join, you have access to the digital library. And in the digital library this week, uh, we're doing a, uh, we're doing a bigger breakdown of Tiny Dancer. So you'll go find us, uh, yeah, you can go find us there. We're going to continue this conversation in the members area. We're also going to continue it in the comments section on the show notes for this episode. So head to overthinking it. Uh, click on the show notes and you'll find a place where you can leave your thoughts and join in a conversation with all of us about Rocket Man, about Elton John, uh, about uh, orgiastic, um, you know, Hieronymus Bosch-like, uh, uh, the Carnivals of Flesh at Studio 54, or whatever else is on your mind. All right. We'll be back next week. Until then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it, probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve.
2: deserve. They could not show Elton John in his famous Donald Duck costume because that would have required you the rights from Disney. <laughs> <laughs>
1: see my maids and tell me when the boys get here It's seven o'clock and I want to rock, want to get a ballet full of beer Old man is drunker than a barrel full of monkeys and my old age, she don't care. My sister looks cute in her braces and boots
2: That's a messed up lyric, by the way. My sister looks cute in her braces and
0: boots? Braces mean a different thing in the UK. Good to know. A handful of grease in her hair
1: Don't give me none of your aggravation. I had it with your discipline. Saturday night's the night I like it. I get a little action in. Get a bottle boiled like a diesel train. Get a better of The Saturday night's the night I like it. It's Saturday night.